are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The space shuttle was a manned orbital rocket and spacecraft system operated by NASA on 135 missions from 1981 to 2011. The system combined rocket launch, orbital spacecraft, and re-entry space plane with modular add-ons. Major missions included launching numerous satellites and interplanetary probes, conducting space science experiments, and 37 missions constructing and servicing the International Space Station, a major international contribution was the Space Lab payload suite from the European Space Agency. The typeface used on the Space Shuttle Orbiter is Helvetica. On the side of the shuttle, between the cockpit windows and the cargo bay doors, is the name of the orbiter. Underneath the rear of the cargo bay doors have been various NASA insignias, the text United States, and a flag of the United States. Columbia, being the first orbiter built, had a flag of the United States on the left wing and USA in bold on the left wing as well and the word Columbia on the payload bay doors from STS-1 to STS Mission 9. Afterwards, it was moved to the usual position as the other orbiters. 
Challenger, wore the letters USA and the flag on the left wing, with the NASA worm lettering and the word Challenger below on the right wing. Challenger also had a different hatch tile pattern. As a result of the early loss of Challenger, it is the only orbiter never to wear the meatball logo on its left wing. The subsequent orbiters benefited from technology advances in tile positioning and were largely similar. The Space Shuttle was initially developed in the 1970s, but received many upgrades and modifications afterwards for improvements ranging from performance and reliability to safety. Internally, the shuttle remained largely similar to the original design, with the exception of improved avionic computers. In addition to computer upgrades, the original analog primary flight instruments were replaced with modern, full-color, flat panel display screens called glass cockpit, which is similar to those of contemporary airliners. With the coming of the International Space Station, the orbiter's internal airlocks were replaced with an external docking system to allow for greater amount of cargo to be stored on the shuttle's mid-deck during station supply missions. The Space Shuttle main engines, otherwise known as the SSMEs, had several improvements to enhance reliability and power. This explains the phrase such as main engines throttling up to 104%. This did not mean the engines were being run over a safe limit. The 100% figure was the original specified power level. During the lengthy development program, Rocketdyne determined the engine was capable of a safe reliable operation at 104% of the originally specified thrust. NASA could have rescaled the output number, saying in essence 104% is now 100%. To clarify this would have required revising much previous documentation and software. So the 104% number was retained the Space Shuttle main engine upgrades were denoted as block numbers, such as Block 1, Block 2, and Block 2A. The upgrades improved engine reliability, maintainability, and performance. 
the 109% thrust level was finally reached in flight hardware with the Block II engines in the year 2001. The normal maximum throttle was 104% with 106% or 109% used for mission aborts. For the first two missions, STS-1 and STS-2, the external tank was painted white to protect the insulation that covers much of the tank. But improvements and testing showed that it was not required. Weight saved by not painting the tank resulted in an increase in payload capability to orbit. Additional weight was saved by removing some of the internal stringers in the hydrogen tank that proved unnecessary. The resulting lightweight external tank has been used on the vast majority of shuttle missions. STS-91 saw the first flight of the super lightweight external tank. This version of the tank is made of the 2195-aluminum-lithium alloy. It weighs 3.4 metric tons, or 7,500 pounds less than the last run of lightweight tanks. As the shuttle was not flown unmanned, each of these improvements was tested on operational flights. The SRBs, or solid rocket boosters, underwent improvements as well. Design engineers added a third O-ring seal to the joints between the segments after the 1986 Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Several other solid rocket booster improvements were planned to improve performance and safety, but never came to be. These culminated in the considerably simpler, lower cost, probably safer, and better performing advanced solid rocket booster. These rockets entered production in the early to mid-1990s to support the space station, but were later canceled to save money after the expenditure of $2.2 billion. The loss of the Advanced Solid Rocket Booster Program resulted in the development of the Super lightweight external tank, which provided some of the increased payload capability while not providing any of the safety improvements. In addition, 
the Air Force developed their own much lighter single-piece solid rocket booster design using a filament wound system but this too was cancelled. STS-70 was delayed in 1995 when woodpeckers bored holes in the foam installation of Discovery's external tank. Since then, NASA has installed commercial plastic owl decoys and inflatable owl balloons which had to be removed prior to launch. The delicate nature of the foam installation had been the cause of damage to the thermal protection system, the tile heat shield and heat wrap of the orbiter. NASA remained confident that this damage, while it was the primary cause of the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster on February 1st, 2003, would not jeopardize the completion of the International Space Station in the projected time allotted. A cargo-only unmanned variant of the shuttle was variously proposed and rejected since the 1980s. It was called the Shuttle C and would have traded reusability for cargo capability with large potential savings from reusing technology developed from the space shuttle. Another proposal was to convert the payload bay into a passenger area with proposals ranging from 30 to 74 seats three days in orbit, and the customer would pay $1.5 million a seat. That never came to fruition. The first four shuttle missions, astronauts wore modified U.S. Air Force high-altitude, full-pressure suits which included a full-pressure helmet during ascent and descent. The fifth flight, STS-5, until the loss of the Challenger, one-piece light blue Nomex flight suits and partial pressure helmets were worn. A less bulky partial pressure version of the high-altitude pressure suits with a helmet was reinstated when shuttle flights resumed in 1988. The launch entry suit ended its service life in late 1995 and was replaced by the full-pressure advanced crew escape suits, otherwise known as ACEs, 
which resembled the Gemini spacesuit in design, but retained the orange color of the launch entry suit. To extend the duration that orbiters could stay docked at the International Space Station, the station-to-shuttle power transfer system was installed. The station-to-shuttle power transfer system allowed these orbiters to use power provided by the International Space Station to preserve their consumables. The station-to-shuttle power transfer system was first used successfully on STS-118. All space shuttle missions were launched from Kennedy Space Center, otherwise known as KSC. The weather criteria used for launch included, but were not limited to, precipitation, temperatures, cloud cover, lightning forecast, wind, and humidity. The shuttle was not launched under conditions where it could have been struck by lightning. Aircraft are often struck by lightning with no adverse effects because the electricity of the strike is dissipated through its conductive structure and the aircraft is not electronically grounded. Like most jet airliners, the shuttle was mainly constructed of conductive aluminum, which would normally shield and protect the internal systems. However, upon liftoff, the shuttle sent out a long exhaust plume as it ascended, and this plume could have triggered lightning by providing a current path to the ground. The NASA Anvil rule for a shuttle launch stated that if an anvil cloud could not appear within the distance of 10 nautical miles from the launch site, the shuttle launch weather officer monitored conditions until the final decision to scrub a launch was announced. In addition, the weather conditions had to be acceptable at one of the transatlantic abort landing sites, one of several space shuttle abort modes, to launch as well as the solid rocket booster recover area. While the shuttle might have safely endured a lightning strike, a similar strike caused problems on Apollo 12. So, for safety, NASA chose not to launch the shuttle if lightning was possible. Historically, 
the shuttle was not launched if its flight would run from December to January, known as a year-end rollover or Euro. Its flight software, designed in the 1970s, was not designed for this and would require the orbiter's computers to be reset through a change of year which could cause a glitch in the orbit. In 2007, NASA engineers devised a solution so shuttle flights could cross the year-end boundary. On the day of a launch, after the final hold and the countdown at T minus nine minutes, the shuttle went through its final preparations for launch and the countdown was automatically controlled by the ground launch sequencer software at the launch control center, which stopped the count if it sensed a critical problem with any of the shuttle's onboard systems. The ground launch sequencer handed off the count to the shuttle's onboard computers at T minus 31 seconds in a process called auto sequence start. T minus 16 seconds, the massive sound suppression system began to drench the mobile launcher platform and the solid rocket booster trenches with 350,000 U.S. gallons or 1,300 meters cube of water to protect the orbiter from damage by acoustical energy and rocket exhaust reflected from the flame trench and the mobile launcher platform during liftoff. At T minus 10 seconds, hydrogen igniters were activated under each engine bell to quell the stagnant gas inside the cones before ignition. Failure to burn these gases could trip the onboard sensors and create the possibility of an overpressure and explosion of the vehicle during the firing phase. The main engine turbo pumps also began charging the combustion chambers with liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen at this time. The computers reciprocated this action by allowing the redundant computer system to begin the firing phase. The three main engines started at T minus 6.6 .6 seconds. The main engines ignited sequentially via the shuttle's general purpose computers at 120 minute second intervals. 
the general purpose computers required that the engines reach 90% of their rated performance to complete the final gimbal of the main engine nozzles to lift off configuration. When the space shuttle's main engines started, water from the sound suppression system flashed into a large volume of steam that shot southward. All three space shuttle main engines had to reach the required 100% thrust within three seconds. Otherwise, the onboard computers would initiate an abort. If the onboard computers verified normal thrust buildup at T minus zero seconds, the eight pyrotechnic bolts holding the vehicle to the pad were detonated and the SRBs were ignited. At this point, the vehicle was committed to liftoff as the solid rocket boosters could not be turned off once ignited. The plume from the solid rockets exited the flame trench in a northward direction at near the speed of sound, often causing a rippling of shock waves along the actual flame and smoke contrails. At ignition, the general purpose computers mandated the firing sequences via the Master Events Controller, a computer program integrated with the shuttle's four redundant computer systems. There were extensive emergency procedures, also known as abort modes, to handle various failures and different failing scenarios during ascent. Many of these concerned space shuttle main engine failures, since that was the most complex and highly stressed component. After the Challenger disaster, there were extensive upgrades to the abort modes. After the main engine started, but while the solid rocket boosters were still bolted to the pad, the offset thrust from the shuttle's three main engines caused the entire launch stack, the boosters, the tank, and the shuttle, to pitch down about two meters at cockpit level. This motion was called the nod or twang in NASA jargon. As the boosters flex back into their original shape, the launch stack pitched slowly back upright. This took approximately six seconds at the point when it was perfectly vertical, the boosters ignited and the launch commenced. The Johnson Space Center Mission Control Center assumed control of the flight 
once the SRBs had cleared the launch tower. Shortly after clearing the tower, the shuttle began a combined roll, pitch, and yaw maneuver that positioned the orbiter headed down with wings level and aligned with the launch pad. The shuttle flew upside down during the ascent phase. This orientation allowed a trim angle of attack that was favorable for aerodynamic loads during the region of high dynamic pressure, resulting in a net positive load factor, as well as providing the flight crew with use of the ground as a visual reference. The space shuttle climbed in a progressively flattening arc, accelerating as the weight of the solid rocket boosters and the main tank decreased. To achieve low orbit requires much more horizontal than vertical acceleration. This was not visually obvious since the vehicle rose vertically and was out of sight for most of the horizontal acceleration. The near circular orbital velocity at the 380 kilometer altitude or 236 miles straight up of the International Space Station is roughly 7.68 kilometers per second or 27,650 kilometers per hour or 17,180 miles per hour roughly the equivalent to Mach 23 at sea level As the International Space Station orbits, at an inclination of 51.6 degrees, the shuttle had to set its inclination at the same value to rendezvous with the station. Around a point called Max-Q, where the aerodynamic forces are at their maximum, the main engines were temporarily throttled back to 72% to avoid overspeeding and hence overstressing the shuttle, particularly in vulnerable areas such as the wings. At this point, a phenomena, phenomenon known as the Pratt-Glopp singularity occurred where condensation clouds formed during the vehicle's transition to supersonic speed. At T plus 70 seconds, the main engines throttled up 
to their maximum cruise thrust of 104% rated thrust at T plus 126 seconds after launch. Explosive bolts released these solid rocket boosters and small separation rockets pushed them laterally away from the vehicle. The solid rocket boosters parachuted back to the ocean to be reused. The shuttle then begins accelerating to orbit on the main engines. The vehicle at that point in the flight had a thrust to weight ratio of less than one. The main engines actually had insufficient thrust to exceed the force of gravity and the vertical speed given to it by the solid rocket boosters temporarily decreased. However, as the burn continued, the weight of the propellant decreased and thrust to weight ratio exceeded one again and the ever lighter vehicle then continued to accelerate towards orbit. The vehicle continued to climb and take on somewhat nose-up angle to the horizon. It uses the main engines to gain and then maintain altitude while it accelerated horizontally towards orbit. At about five and three-quarter minutes into the ascent, the orbiter's direct communication links with the ground begin to fade, at which point it rolls heads up to reroute its communication links to the tracking and data relay satellite system. Finally, in the last tens of seconds of the main engine burn, the mass of the vehicle was low enough that the engines had to be throttled back to limit vehicle acceleration to 3 Gs, largely for astronaut comfort. At approximately eight minutes post-launch, the main engines were shut down. The main engines were shut down before complete depletion of propellant as running dry would have destroyed the engines. The oxygen supply was terminated before the hydrogen supply as the space shuttle main engines reacted unfavorably to other shutdown modes. As you can recall from chemistry class, liquid oxygen has a tendency to react violently and supports combustion when it encounters hot engine metal. The external tank was released by firing explosive bolts, largely burning up in the atmosphere, though some fragments 
fell into the ocean, in either the Indian Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, depending on launch profile. The sealing action of the tank plumbing and lack of pressure relief systems on the external tank helped it break up in the lower atmosphere. After the foam burned away during re-entry, the heat caused a pressure buildup in the remaining liquid oxygen and hydrogen until the tank exploded. This ensured that any pieces that fell back to Earth were very, very small. To prevent the shuttle from following the external tank back into the lower atmosphere, the orbital maneuvering systems, engines, otherwise known as the OMS, were fired to raise the perigee higher into the upper atmosphere. On some missions, missions like those to the International Space Station, the orbital maneuvering system engines were also used while the main engines were still firing. The reason for putting the orbiter on a path that brought it back to Earth was not just for eternal tank disposal, but also one of safety. If the OMS malfunctioned, or the cargo bay doors could not open for some reason, the shuttle was already on a path to return to Earth for an emergency abort landing. The shuttle was monitored throughout its ascent for short-range tracking. 10 seconds before liftoff through 50 second seconds, 57 seconds after. Medium-range tracking, 7 seconds before liftoff through 110 seconds after. And long-range tracking, 7 seconds before liftoff through 165 seconds after liftoff. Short-range cameras included 22 16-millimeter cameras on the mobile launch platform itself and eight 16-millimeter cameras on the fixed service structure for high-speed fixed cameras located on the perimeter of the launch complex plus an additional 42 fixed cameras with 16 millimeter motion picture film. Medium range cameras included remotely operated tracking cameras at the launch complex, plus six sites along the immediate coast north and south of the launch pad, each with 800 millimeter lenses and high speed cameras running 100 feet of film per second. These cameras 
ran for only four to ten seconds due to the limitations of the amount of film available. Long-range cameras included those mounted on the external tank, solid rocket boosters, and the orbiter itself, which streamed live video back to the ground, providing valuable information about any debris falling during ascent. Long-range tracking cameras with 400-inch film and 200-inch video lenses were operated by a photographer at Playa Linda Beach, as well as nine other sites from 38 miles north at Ponset Inlet to 23 miles south at Patrick Air Force Base. And additional mobile optical tracking cameras were stationed on Merritt Island during launches. A total of 10 high-definition cameras were used both for ascent information for engineers and broadcast feeds to networks such as NASA TV. The number of cameras significantly increased and numerous existing cameras were upgraded at the recommendation of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board to provide better information about the debris during launch. Debris was also tracked using a pair of Weevil Continuous Pulse Doppler X-Band radars. One on board the solid rocket booster recovery ship, MV Liberty Star, positioned northeast of the launch pad and on a ship positioned south of the launch pad. Additionally, during the first two flights, following the loss of Columbia and her crew, a pair of NASA WB-57 reconnaissance aircraft equipped with high-definition video and infrared flew at 60,000 feet to provide additional views of the launch ascent. Kennedy Space Center also invested nearly three million in improvements to the digital video analysis system in support of debris tracking. Once in orbit, the space shuttle usually flew at an altitude of 200 miles or 322 kilometers and occasionally flew as high as 400 miles. In the 1980s and 1990s, many flights involved space science missions on the NASA European Space Agency Space Lab or launching various types of satellites and science probes. By the 1990s, the focus shifted more to servicing the space station with fewer satellite launches. Most missions involve staying in orbit for several days to two weeks, although longer missions were possible 
with the extended duration orbiter add-on or when attached to the space station. Almost the entire space shuttle re-entry procedure, except for lowering the landing gear and deploying the air data probes, were normally performed under computer control. However, the re-entry could be flown entirely, ma entirely manually if an emergency arose. The approach and landing phase could be controlled by the autopilot, but was usually hand-flown. The vehicle began re-entry by firing the orbital maneuvering system engines while flying upside down, backside first, in the opposite direction to the orbital motion for approximately three minutes, which reduced the shuttle's velocity by about 200 miles per hour. The resultant slowing of the shuttle lowered, lowered its orbital perigee into the atmosphere. The shuttle then flipped over by pushing its nose down, which was actually up relative to the Earth because it was flying upside down. This OMS firing was done roughly halfway around the globe from the landing site. The vehicle then starts encountering more significant air density in the lower thermosphere at about 400,000 feet or 120 kilometers. At around Mach 25, otherwise known as 180,000 miles an hour. The vehicle was controlled by a combination of thrusters, and control services to fly at a 40-degree nose-up altitude, producing high drag, not only to slow it down to landing speed, but also to reduce re-entry heating. As the vehicle encountered progressively denser air, it began a gradual transition from spacecraft to aircraft. In a straight line, its 40 degrees nose-up altitude would cause the descent angle to flatten out or even rise. The vehicle, therefore, performed a series of four steep S-shaped banking turns, each lasting several minutes at up to 70 degrees of bank, while still maintaining the 40 degree angle of attack. In this way, it dissipated speed sideways rather than upwards. This occurred during the hottest phase of re-entry when the heat shield glowed red and the G-forces were at their highest. By the end of the last turn, the transition to aircraft was almost complete. The vehicle leveled its wings, lowers its nose, 
into a shallow dive and began approaching the landing site. If a mission ended at Edwards Air Force Base in California, White Sands Space Harbor, New Mexico, or any of the runways the orbiter might use in an emergency, the orbiter was loaded atop the shuttle carrier aircraft, a modified 747 for transport back to Kennedy Space Center, landing at the space shuttle landing facility. Once at the space shuttle landing facility, the orbiter was towed two miles along a towway, an access road normally used by tour buses and KCS employees to the orbital processing facility, where it begins its months-long preparation process for the next mission. Sadly, there will never be again a next mission for the space shuttle. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. On a piece of the planet, now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.